Hello everyone and a very warm welcome to this latest Science AAAS webinar. Today we bring you the third installment in a series intended to address important, timely and sometimes controversial topics that impact us all, but with a particular focus on the sciences. In today's webinar, we're talking about a critically important and often ignored topic of mental health in science. I'm Sean Sanders and it is my pleasure to moderate today's discussion. Today's event is made possible through the generous sponsorship of Foundation Ipsen. Now I'm delighted to introduce to you an exceptional panel here with me in the studio. I'm going to introduce them and then give everyone an opportunity to tell you a little bit about what they do and what they bring to this particular conversation. Sitting just to my left is Dr. Nathan van der Ford from the University of Kentucky. He is one of the authors of a 2018 article in Nature Biotechnology entitled Evidence for a Mental Health Crisis in Graduate Education. Next we have Dr. Jennifer Howes from the California Institute of Technology where she is Director of Health and Counseling Services. She is also a practicing clinical psychologist. Our third panelist today is Dr. Charles Hochstraten, Associate Professor at Michigan State University and author of a working life column published in Science entitled Fighting Through the Darkness about his own struggles with mental illness. Finally, I'd like to welcome Dr. Frederick Ansel from King's College London. Frederick is Professor of Organizational Behavior and an author on a 2017 article published in Research Policy entitled Work Organization and Mental Health Problems in PhD Students. A very warm welcome to all of you and thank you so much for being with me in the studio today. Um, Nathan, maybe we could start with you if you could introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do. Absolutely. I'm a faculty member at the University of Kentucky in the Department of uh, Toxicology and Cancer Biology. Uh, I have a long-standing interest in uh, trainee, graduate trainee um, issues, uh, and, and one of those being mental health. And so we published this paper in 2018 um, documenting some of the issues that our trainees face. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I'm excited to be here today and look forward to the conversation. Fantastic. Jennifer. Thanks, John, uh, for the invitation to be here. I'm hope I can bring a clinical perspective. As you mentioned, I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, and so at Caltech, my primary uh, role is to oversee the individual needs of our students, both graduate and undergraduate. But more broadly, I'm interested in suicide prevention initiatives on campus, as well as working with executive leadership to highlight the issue of mental health in, uh, in, our, in our system and make sure that we're responding to that appropriately. Fantastic. Uh, Charles. Yeah, thank you, Sean. I'm happy to be here. I'm an associate professor of biochemistry and molecular biology at Michigan State University. Uh, my lab studies non-coding RNA, structure, dynamics, and function. But I'm, I'm here as someone who has built an academic career around um, mental illness, clinical depression in my case, including what's, what's fair to call a life-threatening crisis as a graduate student, and then um, ongoing struggles to a greater or lesser extent um, at various points in my career. And so I'm, I'm here representing that perspective. Great. Thank you, Charles. And last, we have Frederick. Thank you for the invitation, Sean. So uh, I'm a professor of organizational behavior at King's College London. I have a background in uh, work psychology, so I study well-being, motivation at work, and how people overcome obstacles at work, mental health issues being one of them. And so we had an interest also examining that in uh, PhD students. And our study in 2017 had some unexpected and, and uh, remarkable results and uh, took a lot of attention uh, to those. Uh, so I'm here to talk about what we found. Okay, excellent. So I think that's actually a good place to start. Um, perhaps you, with you, Frederick and, and Nathan, um, since you've 
both been involved in research looking at mental health um, in the science population. Um, the question that I have is, is this truly a crisis? Um, you know, I think I've seen some um, comments published online that say, you know, is this a crisis? Is it maybe just a different way that we're looking at things? What it, you know, what is really going on? So, Nathan, why don't we start with you? Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, Frederick and I, and, and we have, have spoken a lot about this over the last uh, little while, and, um, you know, we our studies uh, highlight some of the issues going on. Um, you know, I think there are high rates of mental health disorders among our trainees. Uh, but ultimately, uh, when it gets down to it, we don't have a good sense, and we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about this more, of exactly how prevalent those issues are. Uh, and so we, we incorporated crisis into uh, uh, the title of our article, but really it was to help promote the conversation around this issue. It's mm -hmm. a very serious issue that we need to be talking more about. And as Frederick mentioned, his study and ours uh, really helped push uh, the conversation forward on this topic. Uh, and we need to better understand it, as, as we'll talk more today about. Mm -hmm. Frederick? Uh, I, I, I very much agree that it's difficult to say is there a crisis or not, because we don't have any data of where we come from and how it was in the past. But our, both our studies clearly show a very high prevalence of problems, one in two students uh, ex experiencing uh, psychological distress, one in three being at risk uh, of mm -hmm. a, a psychiatric uh, disorder. So. At least it deserves attention, it deserves discussion, and we've, we've also seen when our studies were published, we got a lot of response from individual PhD students, uh, faculty members, institutions that recognizing that problem and asking us what can we do about it. Mm -hmm. So Jennifer, I'd like to come to you sure. to, to talk about this, this crisis issue, but um, I'd also like you to address some of the potential environmental and organizational um, factors that you think might be driving this trend. Sure. So first to speak to the, the crisis piece, mm -hmm. um, certainly the increase in demand for mental health services is something that counseling center directors across the country have been managing for some time. Um, we're seeing consistently increasing levels of uh, both distress but also numbers of people coming in to seek services. Um, that's something that it can be a little bit hard to tease out, right? Is that something that has always been happening but now we've reduced stigma to the point that more people are willing to come seek treatment? Um, so there are lots of different factors in play and I agree that we need more research. In terms of the organizational um, and, and other factors that might be contributing, I think that you know it's a stressful time for students to be um, engaged in academic pursuits. I know Charles will talk about a little bit more about that. Mm -hmm. um, but there are also, you know, when you look at each individual institution, it's really important to take a look at what are the the fit and culture implications mm -hmm. of of the places where our students are coming up and how can we address those both on the individual level but then also in the context of a broader you know understanding of the culture. Mm -hmm. All right, Charles? Yeah, as, as, as Jennifer said, their academic science, academia in general, has always been um, a stressful situation, has its own stressors. But even across um, my career, certainly in the preceding years and decades, we've seen a number of those stressors become more acute. Mm -hmm. um, for, for faculty, it's always been pressure to achieve funding. Um, nowadays the funding rates are much lower than they were a couple of decades ago and, and um, it, it can feel much more like an, an existential threat to one's program as a scientist, whether the funding chase is successful. For our trainees, most of them are aware, or at least they should be, that a far smaller percentage of them will wind up turning into their PI, running a lab mm -hmm. in an academic setting 
and that adds a layer of, of angst about what their future looks like on, on top of what is a, a st stressful course of work mm -hmm. in, in research. And so a number of these things have become more acute over mm -hmm. the years. Great. So the, the next thing I'd like to address is the, the prevalence of mental health issues. Um, and to come back to something that Frederick was talking about is, is we don't really have a good benchmark from which to me against which to measure what we're seeing now. So um, I'd like to talk about that and also um, ask if we're underestimating or overestimating mental health issues. So Frederick, why don't we start with you? Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question and it's a difficult issue. So uh, I think we were one of the, the only studies that were able to sort of sample the entire population was in Belgium with our team at uh, Ghent University. But even then, you can always have some sort of a response bias that only people that are experiencing problems or are really in, in invested sort of in that problem uh, are responding. And so it's very difficult to make that assessment. So in our sample, we found that we, we could compare it to the general population, and we found that about twice as many problems uh, in comparison to the general population. But we don't know uh, uh, how strong that conclusion could be uh, due to the re potential response bias. So I think we need more systematic efforts, large-scale efforts uh, over different countries, different disciplines. And at this point, we don't have that data, so we, we can't make very strong conclusions on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, you know, our, our study, we looked at 26 countries, 200 and some odd institutions. Uh, but there again, you know, I think that, you know, we have to admit there's um, a level of selection bias in terms of who participated in these studies. And so we do need more of a population-based, uh, you know, research study that could be conducted to try to get to this. The other question that you alluded to, I think, was, you know, whether or not our trainees are coming into graduate school with elevated rates. You know, where mm -hmm. do they start mm -hmm. out and how does graduate school change that? We don't know those answers, um, and, and and that's something that we we desperately need to know so that we can try to, um, you know, address issues within graduate school that could be causing additional, exacerbating problems mm -hmm. uh, in our trainees. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great. Thank you for bringing that up because I'm definitely going to come to that in our next question. Mm -hmm. um, I want to come to Jennifer first though, just because you talk to a lot of students on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm -hmm. So, um, can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing in, as far as prevalence? possibly compared to what we were seeing a few years ago or, and what, what you think the trend might be? Well, it does seem, based on the data available, we have data um, from Center of Collegiate Mental Health that is focused on folks who are actually seeking services within counseling centers, but we also have um, broader data from the National College Health Assessment, which tells us that more um, students are reporting over time increased levels of anxiety, depression, feeling mm -hmm. hopeless, um, and those numbers are real. Um, certainly, you know, students are telling us that they're feeling this way, and mm -hmm. so we need to be responsive to that um, while we're also working out some of these other research questions. Mm -hmm. Charles, what are you seeing in your yeah, lab? Um, maybe working from the inside out as mm -hmm. a, a member of a department looking at your colleagues, as a member of a research group looking at those colleagues, the, the answer to how prevalent <coughs> these issues are is more than you think. Mm -hmm. Just because there's such a culture in, in science of projecting confidence, of projecting mm -hmm. competence, the, the area you're trying to put forward is, hey, I got this. And that interferes with seeking the help you need if you're struggling. It also, for all of your colleagues, tends to exacerbate the feeling that you are facing a unique struggle, that there is something uniquely wrong with you because all of your colleagues are putting forward this wonderful front. 
And the answer is you, you're not alone. Yeah, I, th I think that's an interesting point because at least anecdotally, many of us, we don't see many of our colleagues struggling or mm -hmm. with these issues. So we get a sense, you know, when we're in our departments that, you know, these issues aren't as prevalent as the data is pointing out that they mm -hmm. are. Um, so I think that's an issue that, you know, we need to talk more openly about the issues and the things that we face and our colleagues face. Mm -hmm. And, and I did want to mention there was a question from, from one of our online viewers about talk, whether we're going to talk about faculty, um, not just students. And we definitely are, and, and thanks for bringing that up as well. Um, so this brings me to the next question that I have uh, quite nicely. And uh, Charles, I think we'll, we'll start with you, is um, how, how much of mental wellness do you think is context dependent? Um, so you know, somebody might be okay manic be coping say in high school um, and even in their undergraduate but then they get to a graduate program and things are getting triggered so can you can you talk to that also from your personal perspective since your it sounds yeah. like your issues possibly started in graduate school or precipitated well I think um, things came to a, a head in graduate school for me mm -hmm. um, there are unique stressors at every point one of the things that a lot of us find who are any of us working in academic science are high achievers. In high school, we were high achievers, probably in college and high achievers. Perhaps at grad school is the time where you run into a place where you're in a pool of people, all of whom who are as, as smart and as successful as you are. There are ways in which that's a positive because it feels more like a community, but there are also ways in which it really causes you to question yourself um, it's very easy to fall into feeling that you're the one who doesn't belong, um, that, that you're the one who is not good enough, and without realizing that many, many of your colleagues are feeling the same way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Frederick? Yeah, in, in academia, we, we celebrate success, and that is really a great thing. But at the same time, uh, everybody's comparing themselves with those very successful people, mm. and people might think of themselves, I'm a fraud here, I'm not in the right place. This sort of, we, we did research in imposter syndrome, mm -hmm. which is probably pretty prevalent, and we've all experienced that at, probably at one point in our career that we're not at the right table or we will mm -hmm. be find out that we shouldn't fit here. And so a lot of people have that question and they think they're the only one and are not talking to each other. Well, everyone at the table might have the same feeling. Right. Yeah. And we were actually talking about that last night, that yeah. I think all of us in some way feel, feel that imposter mm -hmm. syndrome. So I guess that comes back to Nathan's point as well about talk, starting to talk about these things and not, not hiding from them. Yeah, it's uh, one thing that I would like to see us do more is to talk about uh, the issues, you know, ourselves, talk to our trainees about the issues we have as, as we feel comfortable doing so. But also, you know, as Frederick mentioned, we, we do a good job sharing our successes, but we should also share our failures. You know, if we mm -hmm. get a paper rejected, we get a grant rejected, we should take that as a teaching moment for our trainees to say, hey, you know, we don't all succeed all the time and it's okay. And then, sh you know, we can show each other how to get over some of those uh, and, and, you know, revise and resubmit and try again. I mean, mm -hmm. that's part of being resilient and uh, persistent and, and achievements that we have. Mm -hmm. 
I think we know that those personal experiences can be so powerful. Um, I think for students, it's often very difficult to consider, you know, exposing themselves in in their peer group or to their faculty because there's such a power differential, um, right. and yeah. there's the perception and the reality that that can really impact your future success. And so I think it really does take brave um, individuals in positions of power and privilege to start those conversations um, to lead the way, because we know that once that does get started, you will inevitably have several people coming up to you after that lab meeting or sending you an email saying hey I, I felt that way too and so that's it's critical that we have those folks who are willing to take that step. It's mm -hmm. great. So how, how can researchers become more aware of and deal with their own struggles because I think to some extent what you're talking about is somebody who maybe already has an awareness mm -hmm. but how can they become more aware and also how can they help their peers who they maybe see struggling. Uh, we have a, a question from somebody who, who has um, a colleague who they think may possibly has bipolar disorder. So how do you approach that kind of, of subject? I don't know. Maybe, Jennifer, you'd like sure. to talk to that. Um, so on our campus, uh, we have a number of different training initiatives that are designed just for this purpose. Mm -hmm. So we have what's called a care team, which is um, a consultation group that is available to talk with somebody who might be concerned about someone else. Um, but we also offer training on um, how to identify signs of distress, how to approach someone that you're concerned about. Um, it also contains suicide prevention uh, and, you know, content. And so we really are trying to push that out to all members of our community, not just students, um, but faculty, staff, and everyone from, you know, the folks who work in dining all the way up to our executive leadership. And I think that that culture, uh, making that a priority, and that needs to come from the, the highest level in your institution, uh, that can really go a long way in terms of making that more of a cultural shift that your campus makes and starts to foster those kinds of opportunities for interaction. Well, one of the issues is, of course, that this whole PhD trajectory, it is a stressful experience and that's not necessarily always a bad thing. You can also grow to the challenges, overcome the challenges and learn from it. So the, the difficulty is sort of recognizing what is a normal challenging experience and what is a problematic one and so we, we should help people to becoming aware of when a problem is really getting a problem if people are not sleeping for a long time if they're not enjoying their activities if, if they're really worrying about things if they don't see a future for themselves that they start talking about these things and that these things are being recognized for instance by their immediate environment and their PIs and what I, I've uh, but this is anecdotal what I've often heard is that PI say, well, we, we, all, we always knew that something was going on or we had some sort of a hunch, but we, we didn't know how to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And I just w was waiting to see what happened. And sometimes people wait too long to just, just talk about it, engage in the conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I had a personal experience with working in a lab at the NIH with um, somebody who seemed on the surface to be happy, perfectly fine, and a number of years later committed suicide and found out that he had been dealing with depression the entire time and I think it would have been so helpful if he'd been able to share that, felt able to share that with other lab members and, and get that support. Yeah. Nathan? Well I, I, I'm frequently asked a similar question to this and a lot of faculty, uh, you know, when I talk to people about our study and, and other things, faculty will say, you know, I, I'm not a mental health professional so mm -hmm. how can I deal with this or how can I mm -hmm. identify mm -hmm. it? So, you know, on, on our campus and I'm sure many others, there's counseling centers uh, there's other, probably other resources. So if, if a person feels like they need 
you know, some expert consultation, they should reach out to the clinical experts and, um, mm -hmm. and, and you know, notify someone that there could be an issue and then the clinical experts will probably take over from there because I think, you know, we're not clinicians we're, and uh, we don't really know how to address these issues. Mm -hmm. So we should rely on those mm -hmm. that are really clinically equipped mm -hmm. to do so. And that's a common um, refrain that we hear from faculty as well. You know, I, I don't know if I can get involved. Um, and so we, we make the exact same point. It's really a bridge. Starting yeah, that conversation exactly. communicates to the student that you care, that you're interested in their well-being, and that you're going to help them get to the appropriate resource. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't have to mean someone taking on that responsibility themselves. So that's a feature of the training and I think really important to, a message to provide. Mm -hmm. on, on the other hand, I, it should also not be a, an excuse to sort of back, back mm -hmm. down and, and take some distance. What we also found in the study is, is the type of leadership from the PI in the lab makes a huge difference. If that is somebody who, who takes care of the relationship, is supportive, is inspirational, uh, talks with people, that really makes a difference. So, so there's a role for the immediate environment sure. too. Yeah, yeah. I, I can completely agree. I mean, in yeah. our study as well, we, we, um, we showed that there is a faculty-mentor relationship. So if, mm -hmm. if a trainee has a poor relationship with their mm -hmm. advisor, they're more likely to have some of these mental health disorders. And so the faculty member can't just say, you know, you're having an issue, go to the counseling center and deal with this. There needs to be some way to have an honest conversation about what those issues are and then try to deal with those. If there's some sort of interpersonal conflict with the advisor, then that needs mm -hmm. to be dealt with. Um, and I agree that, you know, the faculty advisor can't just say it's not my problem. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and certainly as a PI in a lab, um, outside of dealing with with individuals who may be struggling there are things you can do in how you run the lab you can be that allow you to be aware of, of the stressors in the situation and at least try not to make them worse um, we all believe as scientists that failure is part of the process we've all experienced that most experiments don't work a great number of papers don't get accepted mm -hmm. it's important to send that message to your trainees mm -hmm to make sure that they know that it's okay if they do an experiment three times and it doesn't work until the fourth time. Oh, that oh, that's the yeah. point. All oh, 50 times. <laughs> yeah, that, that three is actually optimistic, right. in fact. Um, but we don't always send that message. Mm -hmm. And I think making clear to, to students that this is the case, that doesn't, and that is actually compatible with having high standards and expecting hard mm -hmm. work, and in fact it helps mm -hmm. with having high standards. Right. So. I think what you're talking about is, is fantastic. You're doing that at a departmental level. Um, th there's a question from an audience member um, about where, asking if there are any best practices that are currently being implemented and that institutions might be able to replicate. Um, and I, th I think, Jennifer, at your institution, you certainly you have this wellness center. I think there's a lot of programs that you're doing. Are these being taken and replicated? Are people looking at these different programs? Are they coming from other universities to visit and, and get advice from you? Sure, I think that there is a lot of sharing amongst um, folks who are involved in providing wellness services and that's an important piece but again I think that it extends much beyond just that role of 
um, providing the immediate and direct service. It's about what are what is the institution doing at a, at a much higher level mm -hmm. in order to take a look at some of these systemic issues. Um, I think the conversations that are being had about um, you know people of color, LGBTQ folks, diversity, um, how that interfaces with um, with the you know stress that students might experience, <coughs> and making sure that that is part of the conversation in the research and starting to look at how we might look uh, at increasing representation, mm -hmm. um, you know, for example, on this panel. I was, I was just going to say, <laughs> yes, I was, I was yes. going to bring that, yeah, we have, we have a rather, a, a not very diverse panel, and I, you know, it's, I, I will admit it's sometimes difficult to get the speakers here to DC, but uh, it's a, a point well taken. Nathan? So in, in terms of interventions, uh, you know, at the University of Kentucky, our, our conversation around mental health has, has really exploded over the last year and a half, two years or so. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the things that our uh, counseling center has done is uh, they now have mental health ambassadors uh, and so these are peers near peers to students who can you know be ambassadors about the conversation mm -hmm. of mental health and um, you know consult with other students and things uh, the other point that I would like to make is that I think they're I think it's not well known what interventions are are being tried out there but I, I think that there are some being done and what I would love to see more of is people doing more evaluation around those interventions and then publishing or disseminating those findings in some way because we need a better understanding of what's being done and how it's working, good or mm -hmm. bad, so that we can you know, adapt the best practices or you know, steer clear of those things that aren't working. Mm -hmm. yeah. I agree. We, we, since, since the study, we get a lot of questions from the institution, what can we do? And, and then I often say, you know, there's a science for this, that you can have an evidence-based approach. Mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes it's about or, or managing an environment, an institutional environment that is sort of supportive. To, to just give one example, what we find is that uh, uncertainty about career prospects is a real stressor, the mm -hmm. uncertainty that people uh, experience. And institutions can, can make sure that they have good career services, that they uh, uh, guide and counsel students throughout that, that is a systematic effort. Uh, institutions can monitor what is happening, can sort of, they, they can have surveys uh, to see if there are mental health problems, how people are dealing with this, and, and they, they should not and reinvent everything themselves. There's a lot of uh, evidence out there. Mm -hmm. I think just to follow on that, that there has been a lot of, um, you know, some siloing, right? There's a lot of research that's being done um, by the folks at the table, and then there are the providers who are trying to meet the needs on campus and who are very often overwhelmed and understaffed. Mm -hmm. And so creating a little bit more integration and collaboration yeah. in those, um, mm -hmm. with those groups, uh, again, with that executive leadership at the highest level that makes this a priority, I think is really critical. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Great, great point. Um, Charles, I'm gonna come to you as a, a, a personal question from uh, one of our audience members. Um, coming back to your talking about stress um, in the sciences, uh, and they ask, uh, so more stress can lead to more intense depression and anxiety, so how do you balance putting yourself in a position of more stress to advance your career with the possibility of triggering those issues? Um, well, not always successfully is part of the answer <laughs> to that, right. but I, I think being aware of things is, is probably the best answer there is, is taking the time to sit down and say, you know, yes, this is something I have to do. Um, you know, there are the various 
techniques of ch chopping things up into small bits and, and so forth. Um, it's important to take care of yourself even when you are under stress. Sometimes, you know, mm -hmm. more so, get enough sleep, it's a, that which has a remarkable correlation. Mm -hmm. With mental illness, um, take time to connect with your peers. Um, one thing I've noticed is that in, in academia we tend to be nomads, right? A lot of us, especially when we're training and sometimes after, relocate pretty often. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that happens when you relocate is you leave your support systems behind. Right. Whether it's, it's clinicians, if you've been going that route, or just your peers that you can talk to, your friends. And a mistake I've made is not proactively rebuilding those systems in a new place. Mm -hmm. You want to get those things in place before you start struggling, before the worst of the stress comes, because then you have something to lean on, mm -hmm. whether it's peer support or more formal practitioners. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you. Um, I'm gonna stay with that uh, to some extent. And we've talked about the, the role of, of graduate advisors and PIs and mentors in identifying this the situation but I also I want to talk about the, the sort of the other side of that is that how how might they be to blame and we have touched on this very briefly but you know I think also coming back to the awareness uh, how can we get PIs to be more aware of how the way that they behave in the lab might influence their students Frederick uh, it's such an important issue because um, when we have these findings and we communicate those results I've seen that uh, sometimes PIs see that uh, are they blaming us and and how I've never been trained in this and mm -hmm. if you think about how our the academic world is structured so often is the, the the best researchers that get into a leadership role but they've actually never been trained to be in a leadership role and so I, I don't blame them and, mm -hmm. and so maybe we need to think in, in universities if we can have uh, better support in terms of career tracks if people get into leadership roles they're managing large labs a lot of people but they they don't have any skills or, or have not learned those skills or they learn them along the way and I think we could do a much better job in training those people. Mm -hmm. Right. And something that you've mentioned before also is monitoring. Um, you know whether it's possible for for us to for PIs to be, uh, take a role in monitoring their grad students. And I do want to come back to that. But Nathan, I, I think you had something to say. Well, uh, you know, I, I think if you look at our study, uh, our studies, and other things that have been done, uh, you know, graduate students are. Um, stressed around some specific things, uh, uh, you know, career, career outcomes uh, are one. Frederick talked about this a little bit already. Uh, and so creating more of a positive environment around the different career paths that one could mm -hmm. take these days, I think, could, could relieve a lot of stress. There's a lot of trainees who will come and say, you know, my PI just wants me to be a faculty member and I don't want to be a faculty member. Mm -hmm. And I feel stuck in this one career path when that's not what I want to do. What do I do? Mm -hmm. um, so being more open-minded as a PI, as a faculty member, I think could really help. Uh, and I think we, we as faculty need to understand that graduate students are placing a significant amount of, of pressure on themselves and we need to realize and be able to recognize that and be able to step in and say, hey, why don't you go and, you know, go to the gym and work out or go for a run or, you know, give our, our trainees 
uh, permission to go and do something else. I think that that's something I don't think I've ever heard a faculty member say, mm -hmm. is go go and just do something Take fun. a break. Take a break. <laughs> yeah. I had that. I, I, re I remember my own advisor saying, Frederick, uh, there's no sense in being here every evening. Go home. Oh, <laughs> Go yeah, home. That's great. I said, okay. Yeah. But I think the challenge also is even when we, we do have the faculty who will say those things, and I think that hopefully that number should be growing, right, with more attention on the issue, many students don't feel like they're able to really do that because they see everybody else um, right. continuing to stay in the lab when they've been advised to take a day off. And yeah. so there's still this internal sense of competition that I think should be addressed explicitly by the PI, mm -hmm. right? To say, here, here are the expectations, here are the things that I hope that you do to find balance or you know opportunities for you to do so. And really kind of holding people accountable to that and making sure that, um, that folks are following through because it's easy to say, but then when we look at what people are actually doing, sometimes mm -hmm. we find that even when they're given the opportunity, they're not able to really access that. And, and there's, a, of course, the other side is that there could be a, a trickle-down thing that if the PI, if the mentor is stressed out themselves and there's a huge competition for funding, everything, they, they even don't have time and the resources to pay attention to those issues in, 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 in their students. So we also need to take care of the PIs and, and their mental health. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, we, should, we should try as best we can to model good well-being. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, faculty have needs as well and there's lots of stresses. And so, you know, we have to, we have to be well to be able to model right. well-being. Mm -hmm. and, that's a great point. Yeah, That's a challenge. You need to look after yourself before you can yeah. look after the, the yeah. students. Right. So what, what programs are out there for faculty? You know, do, or, you know, are faculty asking for this the way that, that students are? Um, or is there more of a stigma possibly with faculty? Um, so Jennifer, would you like to? Um, at Caltech, we're very fortunate to have basically a counseling service for faculty, staff, and postdocs, which is something that not many campuses have in-house. Um, most folks have an EAP program, which is a little bit harder to navigate. But for us, we really try to make that piece about faculty, staff, wellness a part of the conversation on an ongoing and, and really directed basis. Um, so I think that, you know, that's one other way to model. We see people accessing that. We see faculty using um, that as a consultation point, even if they're just not sure how to help somebody else. Mm -hmm. um, and then eventually maybe come back and say, oh, I'd, I'd actually like to seek services for myself. So I think that direct service model is important, but also mentoring of you know more senior faculty mm -hmm. to newer faculty and vice versa. I think both groups have things to learn from one another. Right. Um, my impression is that newer faculty coming in may be a little bit more open to these conversations, you know, within the context of stress of getting tenure, of course, but that there are things that, um, that both groups can learn from each other in a more intentional way. Mm -hmm. What's interesting to me is that you know we've we've talked mostly about graduate trainees and and we've said that there's you know there needs to be more research done, um, but on the faculty side, as far as I understand and know, there's even less data and you know in the sciences there's mm. been some more things that have been done in in medical in this in medical school world, but in the sciences very little is known about faculty issues and mm -hmm. so that that's wide open to better understand um, and you know create better interventions that could help faculty which could have a trickle-down effect for sure mm -hmm. 
I, I agree. So, so we sort of did the first studies in PhD students, but we have no idea on, on systematic studies and how it looks like at, at the faculty level. Uh, what we see from anecdotes is a lot of uh, war stories and people <laughs> like to talk about working 70 hours a week and that it's necessary to be successful in this profession, which I don't believe actually. Uh, but of course, that is modeling. And that's uh, if people tell this sort of stories about how many hours you need to spend in the lab working day and night, people will sort of model that behavior. Right, right. So, so coming back to your culture, I think cultures need to change um, to some extent in the labs, and I, I'm, I'm not sure how that will happen, uh, but maybe the new faculty coming up, the new students coming up who are more open to talking about this, maybe could yeah. drive that. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I, Frederick knows this best, but it, ultimately it's, you know, organizational behavior. It's culture of the whole institution, mm. uh, and it needs to be you know, it needs to be bottom up and top down, and eventually it can merge on some happy medium, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So coming back to culture a little bit, and Charles, I'm, I'm going to come to you with this question. So we, we talked about PIs who, can, who will tell you to take a break or are aware of mental health issues. But on the flip side, there's also PIs who create problems. Um, there was a, a question from somebody asking, saying, you know, I've, my PI bullies me in the lab, and, you know, I, I've come out of a graduate program. Yeah wanting to quit but coming out with, with PTSD. Um, so how, how can someone address that when, they're, when a, a grad student is in the lab and they feel like they're being treated unfairly? And this also comes back to the diversity issue is that um, uh, students of color, um, LGBTQ plus students have, I think, unique issues in this sense. Um, you know, a trans student maybe in a lab could get very easily teased and, and put down by lab members and PI. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that. I think, I mean, that's obviously a very difficult issue, just mm -hmm. because PIs have so much authority and power mm -hmm. over the people in their lab. Um, one thing I think departments can do is to make sure that there are support systems or pipelines in place for graduate students to go to and that the students know about them. Um, you know, having a, something as simple as having a departmental graduate director who the students know they can come to and, and isn't just you know, doing the paperwork, but is proactive about engaging with students and making sure that they know that there is somebody they can come and hopefully get some conflicts resolved. Um, peer groups among students are enormous. You know, if the more that we as, as a department, that we as faculty can encourage a feeling of community among graduate students, you know, even just so that they're all willing to, to go out to the pub together and complain about us, that's enormously healthy. Mm -hmm. And I don't think every place does that. I think that's something that, that could be paid more attention to. Mm -hmm. I think, uh, so from time to time I get this sort of comments from uh, universities, institutions saying that we don't have that problem. I think that's an <laughs> extremely risky statement because I think it happens everywhere. It right. often remains hidden. And if you make statements about we don't have that problem, I think uh, that sort of prevents people from speaking up. And so you need to create a, a, a sort of a situation, a culture of psychological safety where people feel safe to speak up about those issues. Um, and so, so we need to create awareness, but also openness at all levels in the universities that these things happen and that uh, you, need, you need to be open uh, and, and, and see where it could happen. That's exactly right. It doesn't take much of a message yeah. from up above to make a trainee even more resolved 
to just not show weakness. Exactly. Yeah, you know, it's it's very dangerous if institutions, institutional leaders say those things because then, you know, trainees, faculty that are having issues then feel very marginalized in terms of their feelings and how they might, you know, be able to resolve those issues. And back to the the audience members comment, the one other thing I was going to say was a lot of times our trainees feel stuck or locked into a particular lab environment. Um, I just consulted a trainee last week that was having major issues and I said, look, you don't have to deal with this. Just switch labs. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's a very, very difficult, challenging decision. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the person that may add on an extra six months or a year or whatever, but you can move to a much more positive environment and have a much more productive uh, graduate experience so mm -hmm. people shouldn't feel stuck in yeah. the environment. If I may add to that, it is uh, uh, probably a characteristic of being in an extremely stressful situation that you develop a tunnel vision. You don't see any way out and you don't see the benefit of talking to other people right. because that's a characteristic of going through that experience. So it's up to the environment to get people out of that tunnel and, and, and say, for instance, you can move. There are options. Other people have been in that situation and will help you solve that mm -hmm. situation. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to come to some of the, the ways that we can mitigate these issues. And we, we have touched on quite a few, but I'd like to go into them in a little bit more depth. But I, I would also like to come to some of the questions from our online audience that some of them I thought were very interesting. Um, coming back to, to what you were just saying, Frederick, um, one of the viewers wrote in and said she has, I, I believe it was a she, apologies. Um, I, I <laughs> certainly don't want to be sexist. Um, that uh, her parents are quite conservative and they don't they don't see um, mental health as an issue and they kind of you know don't see it as serious how does she talk to them so you know th and, and the reason I bring this up is because clearly the, the students coming in graduates postdocs and, and then become eventually PIs are coming from some sort of background so they carry with them those ideas so um, I'm not sure who'd like to talk to this maybe Charles you you can address that um, yeah f families can be helpful or not. Um, I, I personally have, have four older brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. I didn't tell any them anything about my struggles with um, you know, clinical depression until it, it really became um, necessary to and as with colleagues I was really shocked at the positivity of the response. Mm -hmm. People can be better than you think. Um, yeah, if you're in a, a partnered relationship. Mm -hmm. That can be a, a great source of support, but you want to avoid the pitfall of completely relying on your intimate partner, on one person, mm -hmm. as your support. Um, in a crisis, sure, most people will rise to a crisis. But if as time goes on, somebody else gets the feeling that they are responsible mm. for your mental health, that's no good for them it's unfair to them and can exacerbate their own problems and it also places the relationship at risk. Mm -hmm. And so families can help. There are ways in which the family is not the right place to go or at least not the right place to make the, big, the best weight. Um, mm -hmm. 
I found that sometimes it can be helpful to talk about the impact of what somebody's experiencing. So instead of saying, you know, I'm, I'm depressed, especially if the parents aren't sort of very psychologically savvy or don't believe that that's um, a thing, to say, you know, I, I feel so stressed out that it's difficult to get out of bed and get to lab. Or, you know, I'm feeling so sad all the time that I'm thinking about taking my life. I just don't see the point of this. Mm -hmm. Putting it in those terms, I think, can sometimes help um, folks understand what people are really experiencing and then mm -hmm. focus on, okay, well, how do we help you with that? What mm -hmm. are some interventions and things that we can do in order to make those things better without, um, you know, having to label it? It, it certainly sounds like depression, yeah. but we don't have to call it that if that's not some, that's not right. the language that, you know, parents are speaking. There's a very big, you know, lots of cultural factors, lots of different right. things that can impact people's view of mental health. Right. And that might be a trigger for them. Right. So, um, related to that, uh, we we have viewers on the line from who are from other countries um, or parts of this country that don't necessarily have these programs or have the funding that support these types of programs. So um, do you have any advice for those people who maybe do not have um, the, the benefit of some of the programs that we have, you know, the larger universities, uh, Jennifer? It is really challenging when you have these sort of clinical deserts where there aren't enough resources or an institution doesn't have them on site or the, the resources to provide um, what folks need. I think at a very basic level, being able to connect with other people is a very significant um, both protective factor and healing experience. And so it's about finding that initial one person that you can go to that will then sort of open up perhaps that network and, and make that more of a conversation. Mm -hmm. I think students um, at institutions where there aren't a lot of resources have a lot of power, right? If you can get students together um, to say, here's what our experience is and here's what we need, um, they very often are able to advocate in a way that, you know, even professionals who are from the outside looking in aren't able to do. Mm -hmm. um, I think there are also sort of national lines. I know you have some a slide towards the end of the presentation that offers um, help for folks in crisis mm -hmm. that is, you know, not based on an, a location but can be done by chat or the yeah. internet. So I think it's looking for that one, one initial starting point to connect with someone else and share what's happening and then from there, you know, expand that network. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, I think you need a support system and you need, you know, peer support system, but you also need, you know, faculty supporters. And so if you're not getting the the level of positive support that you need from your immediate supervisor, there are other faculty somewhere on your campus that would love to be a positive ray of light in your life and help you get where you want to go. And you should feel empowered to seek those out. And, um, you know, that can be a tremendous help to you now and, and in, the f in the future. Mm -hmm. Right, fantastic. Um, another question from our online viewer. Uh, how does one heal or get back to normal after suffering a breakdown or, or simply burning out? And um, I think specifically for the sciences that we're talking about, I think this can be very difficult when you leave behind a project that maybe somebody else takes over and maybe you feel some guilt about not being able to continue or maybe the project just ends because you're the expert uh, in that. So. Um, Frederick, would you like to talk it, to this? It, yes, uh, it can almost be a cycle, right? Because you, you, you need to let go of a project, but then you feel very guilty towards your environment, which then, again, uh, sort of uh, aggravates uh, potentially the problems. And also, we need to be clear that for some problems, they take time. 
And so, for instance, we know with burnout that sometimes you need to take the time to, to heal and, and get better. And if you try to get back too soon, uh, because you feel the pressure of your environment or you put the pressure on yourself to get that project going again, uh, uh, you, you can fall back in the same sort of pattern and, and, and there's a risk for that. So, so my advice is that please take care of yourself and, and take the time to first heal. Um, and often, uh, again, this is this tunnel vision that you think, if I don't do it, it will never get better. But you'll be surprised how the environment can step in and help you and support you and still moving uh, your research project forward. Mm -hmm. I think it's heartbreaking when a scientist experiences burnout and loses love for something that was so dear to mm -hmm. them. Um, and, you know, that's a terrible feeling. I, it happens, and I think being able to step back and start to, you know, disconnect from that project or that, um, you know, program or whatever was sort of embroiled in the burnout and start to get back to very concretely what, what sparked my interest in science, mm -hmm. what got me excited about doing this work, um, and not just the content of that, but how, you know, what does that look like? Am I inspired by teaching others? Am I inspired by, you know, doing research to find kind of the next um, new thing? Mm -hmm. uh, but really getting back to that very basic level and then starting to rebuild things from there. I think too often we try to jump back into mm -hmm. something that isn't a good fit or we can't make that connection between what we really felt inspired about to begin with. And so mm -hmm. we need to kind of reignite that spark first. It is also an issue for the broader academic community. We do not want to lose talent, right? There are bright minds that are struggling and that might consider stopping an academic career entirely, stop doing research, but sometimes and often these are great ideas, great research, so we need to take care of that so that we do not lose valuable talents. Uh, so it's a responsibility not only for the individual, because sometimes I, I, I see the questions go, what can the individual do, do? And it seems like it's all individual responsibility. I think there's a, a community responsibility. We need to make sure mm -hmm. that those people, bright talents, we keep them on board. Right. Can I say one thing about that? I think that's really important. Um, and to do that in a very intentional way. I think yes. sometimes if we identify a student as being particularly, um, have a lot of potential or being particularly gifted, even if we get the sense that something isn't quite right, sometimes the response is to give them lots of flexibility and lots of leeway um, and you know, don't say anything when they don't show up to lab for the, the mm -hmm. month. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's not the right response. I think we need to be more proactive about saying, hey, I noticed that something's going on and I want to help you through that. Um, but the sort of hands-off, like I don't want to rock the boat, they'll figure it out, or maybe this is just a, a passing um, thing, is sometimes it has the opposite intended effect. They end up leaving because they feel mm -hmm. guilty that nobody's noticing and they're not performing. Right. Yeah, we, we talked a good bit off air about coping mechanisms mm -hmm. and, you know, the, I think we agree mostly that, you know, these, these are very individualized. You have to figure out what is it that is best for you to cope around, you know, a particular issue, you know, as, as Jennifer said, in terms of, of, you know, figuring out what energizes you. So a lot of self-analysis, self-evaluation. Um, but also, I agree that you know having the community, your faculty, PI, or whatever, help you identify those issues can be a very impactful experience in terms of you know the trainee or whoever making making them aware that oh this person really does care about me and they're going to help me figure out what these issues are and help me mm -hmm. work through those. Mm -hmm. 
That's actually a, a great segue into what I'd like to close the webinar with, which is, is talking about some of the possible solutions. Um, one thing we haven't really touched on, um, and Jennifer, I'd like to come to you on this because I know you have some experience with it, is technology. Some of the news technologies, you, you, I think you mentioned something earlier. Um, we haven't looked at technology as a causative factor, and I, we did have some questions about that. I don't know that we have time to get into that. I think it's an interesting topic, but I think, as um, Frederick and Nathan will probably agree, not a lot of research has been done in this area. Um, so we, we won't go to that, but um, Jennifer, the, I, I'm, I believe there's some just-in-time interventions that are using new technology. Can you talk about some of those? Sure. So there are a couple of different um, levels to this. One is sort of online cognitive behavioral therapy, which can be something uh, that speaks to some students who maybe are trying to get a little help, but they're not quite sure if they want to step foot into a clinical setting mm -hmm. quite yet, um, that are very skills-based and I think can provide some scaffolding or a framework for people to understand, okay, it is real to have negative thoughts, that's a thing. This program can help me sort of examine those and then perhaps move on to in-person therapy if needed. There are also, um, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, I believe it is, uh, has a an online platform that allows folks to reach out anonymously um, and that is linked to an institution so we can mm -hmm. respond in a way that um, that we couldn't before, you know, Folks can reach out anonymously, let us know that they're in trouble, and then we have a mechanism for providing them resources. And I think that f fills a very important niche in, the, in our efforts to reach folks who may not feel comfortable um, stepping forward and saying that they need help. Um, so there, are, I think it's a developing area, and there are lots of different tool-based apps as well that, um, that provide meditation and mindfulness uh, that can also be used. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I remember when uh, talking to my own PhD students and I said I was under a lot of stress, not sleeping very well. Actually, my own PhD students suggested an app to use, the, the Headspace app, and sort of to, to meditate and say, this will help you find a mm -hmm. sort of reverse mentoring, very, very helpful. But there, there's also a downside on this that we, for instance, if we have an environment, a culture that puts people under a lot of pressure, and, and then we say, well, to deal with that, it's also your responsibility to stay healthy, and here's an app to deal with that. Maybe we need to look at the mm -hmm. root cause and, and look at the pressure that, that right. we're organizing instead of just having people to be responsible for their own uh, health. Something I think I'll, I'll add to the discussion of modalities is that mental illness is, even within, say, depression, is a very individualistic phenomenon, and if you're trying to work through a dark time, what works for one person won't work through another. Mm -hmm. I have, I know people who refer to the going on the right antidepressant as the time the lights came on. Right? Um, for me, medication has really only ever helped around the edges. What I have found most useful in common with some scientists is what Jennifer was mentioning, cognitive behavioral therapy in, in individual or groups in my part. That has particular appeal to some um, scientists because it, in a nutshell, involves um, addressing negative feelings by identifying the distorted thoughts that underlie them and rationally confronting those distorted thoughts. And that sort of rational, logical approach mm -hmm. fits with the worldview mm -hmm. of a lot of us, mm -hmm. but not all of us. It could be mm -hmm. something else for you. And so keep looking for the approach that does help you get mm -hmm. through the problems that you have. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, Nathan, I'd like to come back to what you were talking about earlier as, as far as coping mechanisms. And uh, again, we, we were talking off air about, um, I, I quite like the term constructive coping, um, mm -hmm. and the flip side is destructive coping. Uh, so can you talk a little bit more about that and, and how those two might differ and how or possibly how the same type of coping mechanism may have both both sides? Yeah, so the, the interesting thing we were talking about off-air that you know, you know you may be referring to in terms of destructive coping mechanisms, uh, you know, if, if you're totally, if you have some issue that's causing you stress, anxiety, depression, whatever, um, you know, avoiding that is not necessarily the solution that's mm -hmm. going to work for you short time short-term or long-term, um, you know, ultimately you really do need to address these issues, find a positive solution to work through them so that they are no longer an issue rather than just avoiding them. Um, you know, I, I, we were talking and, and this is something that I did uh, in my own personal uh, experiences and, you know, you can get through those, uh, but it's not always, um, you know, with the best possible outcomes. So, you know, uh, addressing the issues head-on I think is the best possible way and and again you gotta you gotta do some really uh, you gotta do some evaluation to figure out what the issues are uh, and then you can then tease out some coping mechanisms that mm -hmm. can that can work uh, best for those situations mm -hmm. great um, Jennifer did you have anything you'd like to add about uh, constructive coping and, and some of the methods that, that you maybe have encountered Sure. I think it's really important for people, I mean, this is sort of echoing what other folks have said, to, to take a step back and reconnect with things that are already helpful to them or mm -hmm. enriching in their lives. Sometimes it can be difficult to, um, to identify those if somebody says, well, how do you cope? Um, and the answer is, well, I'm not doing that very well right now. I can't really think of those things. But stepping back and looking at what are the the activities that tend to, you know, energize you or make you feel nourished. Um, for some people, uh, it's, it's about recognizing that that walk that they take to work every day could be used as a way to mm. sort of, you know, do a little kind of on the road meditation and think about how they're going to set up their day and make that to-do list. So something that's already existing is a, often a really good place to start rather than thinking about adding in many, many new things um, for coping strategies. What I've seen is that some, some people really systematically try to learn how to cope with it and treat almost themselves as a study object and they learn from mm. themselves and so they try it, experiment the different ways of coping, strategies and they see what worked for them and in the long run they, they learn what worked for them and what not, what triggers some problems, what not. And so some, sometimes things get better along the way because you, you, you become more aware of how you function in those things. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, this has been a, a fantastic discussion. We've had a lot of questions that unfortunately we didn't have time to get to, but I think we've covered a lot. So um, we're going to have to end the discussion here. Um, my deepest appreciation to today's panelists uh, for being here, uh, Nathan van der Ford, uh, Jennifer Howes, Charles Hoogstraten, and Frederick Unseel. Again, thank you so much to our panel. Really appreciate you being here. Um, thank you, Sean. Uh, and to Foundation Ibsen for their kind sponsorship of today's seminar. Goodbye. Mm -hmm.